Well, if you think you're a know-it-all, go plant a church, and you'll figure out you're not. And every time you do it again, and you realize how little you know. Uh, I did have an uncle, though, Brother Churchill, that, that um, he, he would do that every time. So my dad and another one of the family members would make up stories that were not true and tell them to see if he had top them, and he had top them every time. <laughs> Amen. You may be seated. Good to be uh, in Alaska. I've enjoyed myself. Amen. I, 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 I've only been to Alaska in the summer, and, and based on that, I think I could live here. <laughs> I wonder how many people have said that. <clears throat> but uh, uh, I haven't experienced the Alaska winter yet, but I told Brother Blackshaw, I said, I want to come up here in the darkest, coldest part of the winter and just see true Alaska. There you go, Brother Farmer. I want to come see you. Amen. Get on that uh, snowmobile and, and go. Amen. But I don't want to eat seal. Uh, but I'll just, uh, just kind of take your word for it that it's probably good. Amen. Well, uh, I think uh, realism is important when it comes to church planting. And it's, it's not negativity, it's being realistic. And Jesus said it, nobody goes out and builds a, to build a tower and without counting the cost first. All right? And, and it, you, you have to count the cost and you have to be realistic about the challenge, and that's one of the dangers we face, uh, is uh, we want to motivate people to plant churches, but not just out of a shallow motivation of this is what we want you to do and this is what it takes to be cool, right? You want to be motivated, this is what God wants us to do, and so I want to do what God wants me to do. And, and that's a motivation that lasts, right? And, uh, but so we have to uh, get into the practical aspects of what it takes uh, to, to build a church. And that's what I want to talk about today. I believe that, and I, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm not a professional speaker, I'm a professional church planner, so sometimes I don't keep good notes on what I've said where. I'm doing better about that now. But uh, I can't remember everything that I spoke to you about last year, but I do know that I did talk to you about foundational families. And, you know, let me just review for some of those that wasn't here. Foundation, churches are built on foundational families. If you boil a church down to what makes up a church, it's first of all, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and it's built on the apostles and the prophets. I consider that to be the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Word of God uh, with the revelation of Jesus Christ is the foundation. J Jesus said, upon this rock, the revelation of who he was, he would build the church and so that's the foundation, but then the Bible says we are built up as lively stones and we grow to a holy habitation of God. So the next brick in that, laid on that foundation is a pastor and his wife or a pastor and her husband, maybe, <laughs> uh, what, whoever God calls or just a pastor, uh, whoever God calls to do that, uh, and 
and then there's foundational families that are laid, that first row of bricks. Uh, most of you, or a lot of you uh, in the ministry, if you go into a Bible school, I say about 60% of the kids in Bible school are from foundational families. A foundational family is a family that believes a doctrine as strong as you do. If their pastor starts preaching something that's different than what they've heard and what they've seen in the Scripture, they're going to be in your office and say, Now, what did you mean by that? Uh, they're not only committed to the doctrine, but they're committed to the local church that they're part of. Okay? There's a lot of people committed to doctrine, but they're not committed to the local church that they're part of. A, a foundational family is so committed to that local church that if it comes out in the newspaper on Saturday that you robbed a bank, they're going to weep and cry and be disappointed and hurt, but as soon as they dry their tears, they're going to say, well, I, we better get there early on Sunday because if the pastor's not going to be there and he's going to be in jail, somebody's got to open up the church. And they start thinking about who's going to preach because you can't run them off because they're foundational families. Okay? And... That's the core of a church. When you go to plant a church, you're, you have to build people like that. Okay, you, uh, Foundational families haven't always been foundational families. Somewhere, somewhere, uh, second generation, third, three generations back, somebody came to Jesus for the first time. Amen. My grandfather uh, was a board member at Brother Craft's church for years. My grandfather was brother-in-law to W.E. Gamlin and called W.E. Gamlin to come start the church in Jackson, begged him to come because uh, he had moved his family from the backwoods of Mississippi and they wasn't a church, an apostolic church in Jackson, Mississippi. And so, uh, but my grandfather got saved when he was 14. His mom and dad didn't go to church. His grandparents didn't go to church. He found his way to a brush arbor, and God filled him with the Holy Ghost. Amen. It starts somewhere. It starts somewhere. And uh, he came home and told his parents what happened. And uh, a little while later, his parents, they were, in a, they were praying together at home, and his mom and dad were filled with the Holy Ghost in their home. And... His grandparents lived about a mile away, and they came over the next day, and they said, what happened over here last night? He said, we saw a great light. And they got saved. And my great-grandfather wound up planting a church in Mississippi that's still there today because my grandfather got saved at 14 years old. And that's going to be a story. In your, when you go to build a church, some, there's going to be a 14-year-old. There's going to be a 6-year-old. There's going to be a 30-year-old. There's going to be somebody come to Jesus for the first time. And it's going to start building a legacy in their life. Brother Soto said last night about his father made a decision to live for the Lord. And look at the results of that. Amen. And so when you're, you're, that's what you're trying to build. Now, church growth is uh, 
a little different animal. If you're trying to grow a church of 150 to 250, there's a little different approach because you have some foundational families and you, you can approach things differently. But I'm talking about church planting. I'm talking about getting started. Okay, you got to build those. And so today I want to talk to you about the process of discipleship. All right, the process of discipleship. If I could get some water, that would be great. Um, now, I'm going to start in the middle of a process. Today, I'm going to do a soul winning seminar for these missionaries, these Bible school kids, and, and I'm excited about that. And that's, going, that's the first part of this lesson. But I'm going to start in the middle of this process. There's a whole process that uh, comes before conversion. I'm going to start at conversion today and go to foundational family. All right? So th- I'm preaching part two of a two-part lesson. And uh, because how many knows discipleship can be more difficult than getting people saved? All right? And you, can, you can get 100 people saved and sometimes only make two disciples. Right, and then we could debate whether or not they were really saved or not. But anyway, uh, they can have uh, uh, you know an experience. We can baptize a bunch of people, but but the, discipling them, and and let's just face it, practical reality in a church 150, it may not matter so much. I mean, it does matter in the scheme of things, but you're not so concerned about it because if you baptize 100 people and only two people stick, you still get the same paycheck. Am I too practical for you? <laughs> but if you, it's you and your wife and ten others, how disappointing is that and how devastating is that to have a hundred people baptized and only two stick? And you've expended all of this energy... Uh, uh, and what happens is it's kind of like a, we talked about a lion last night. Lion, he can have some misses, and they miss a lot of times, but eventually they got to eat. And so you can run around and run around and get people baptized, get people baptized, but eventually you got to eat. Well, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn is the principle there. And if the ox dies... You've lost your instrument of work, and so no grain gets threshed. And so it, it, in the beginning, uh, when you're starting a church, yeah, you, you, the ox is eating all the corn because there's no hope of a harvest if you lose the ox, right? And so uh, you've got to add people to that church, and there is a time limit. You can't go on forever not adding people to your church and not adding tithe payer to the church. That's not sustainable over the long term. You've got to figure out how to build disciples. And let's not have the uh, bigotry of low expectations. I pay my tithes. I live holy. I come to church I'm committed, I'm dedicated, but they may not be capable of that level. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. 
And they must. Right? You're trying to reproduce people with the same commitment as you are. You're not trying to reproduce a bunch of people that really can't measure up. You're condemning them to a life uh, of uh, 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 unvictorious life. They're not living an overcoming life. You want to, them to be more than conquerors through Christ. Amen. So step one, and it should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Genuine conversion is necessary before the discipleship process can or should begin in earnest. When you're trying to teach people holiness that don't have the Holy Spirit, You can't begin the discipleship process until there's a conversion, genuine conversion moment. The, the biblical type that I use, and I feel like it was given to us for this purpose, is the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt. Pharaoh's the devil. Egypt is the world. Children of Israel are God's people. Moses is the preacher. To get out of Egypt, the first thing they have to do is to be baptized in the cloud and in the sea. There's no deliverance from sin. There's no deliverance from addiction. There's no uh, love for holiness. There's nothing going to happen until they've been baptized in the cloud and in the sea. They have to be born again of an incorruptible seed. The very DNA of God has to be implanted in them. They have to be born again, and then that seed will grow in their lives just like it does in, the, uh, 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 in a mother's womb. It begins to grow, and they begin to look more like their daddy every day. Born again of the water. And of the Spirit. I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm on that because I think some people try to make saints out of people that aren't saved. I'm telling you, it's a losing proposition. I got a guy right now I can't get saved. And I, I'm on him because he thinks he's been baptized adequately. And he hasn't been because the name of Jesus hasn't been called over him in baptism. Now, I'm either going to baptize him or I'm going to lose him. I'm not, what I'm not going to do is let him linger on in this state of being unsaved for years and years and years. My job is to bring him and confront him about the issue. Now, I've baptized his kids and I've baptized his wife, so I have hope. But I, he, I just keep tightening the noose on him because he keeps coming. He likes, he likes me. He likes the church. He wants to be used, and he can't be. 
because he hadn't been baptized right. Now, I love him, and I'm using him as much as I can. But he knows there's a barrier. I see him. He's pushing up against it. He can't figure out what it is, although I've asked him to be baptized at least seven times. He's been through every Bible study I know about baptism in Jesus' name. I don't know why he's not getting it. But I'm going to find out because I'm going to keep pushing. I can't help anybody that's not born again. Uh, if I'm going to try to do that, I'll go try to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor. If I'm going to try to help people through carnal means, there's a limit to that. Some people can be helped through that to a degree, but there's a limit to that. I'm not in the business of limited help for unsaved people. I'm in, I'm in the business of lives being transformed. Amen. And so you came to hear today, people got to be saved. Okay, all right, I'm going to assume you've got that. And so step two, now, when the children of Israel are coming out, uh, the first they were baptized in the cloud and sea, but then they, they have had, uh, God has built trust in Moses through the plague. You know, the plagues and the miracles were all about uh, renewing the children of Israel's faith in Jehovah and Moses. Right? Uh, if you're going to build a church, you're going to have to have miracles. I don't know how to be a soul winner and disciple people without divine intervention in their life. God has to speak to them in a profound way that they know that it's God. The children of Israel told Moses, leave us alone. You're just causing us trouble. We don't, we're fine where we are until there was divine intervention, right? And, and so there's got to be divine intervention. You've got to pray for miracles. You've got to look for opportunities for healing. You've got to see every crisis as a, as a chance for God to step in. And every time somebody gets sick, let's pray for healing. Every time somebody has something going on, let's pray for a miracle here. You got, let, uh, God, do something! Moses wasn't leading those people. By himself? You're not building a church by yourself. God sent you there. You're a co-laborer, a fellow laborer with God. Okay, God, come on. Sometimes we get a, a, a what is it, a um, complex where we think we're God. And people treat you like you're God. Oh, man, people come. That, oh, you, they just, you just got all the answers to their problems. Oh, pastor. You know. You know. We like that. More than we like to admit. Until you get about 30 of them hanging on you. And then you're, you're, re you're done with it. <laughs> right? 
You can take care of two or three. And that's what happens. Churches get stuck in the 15 to 20. Why? Because a pastor is the mama. I won't use the language my pastor, Brother Kraft, would use about this. But anyway. Uh, if, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and they're taking every, they're sucking the very life of the pastor away. They, they're calling him. They're not praying. They're calling the pastor. They're not committed to Jesus. They're committed to the pastor. They're not asking the Lord to solve their problem. They're not getting in the Word. They're, they're just taking everything you got. You read the Word, you pray, and they suck it right out of you. And you know what? You can only, everybody's got a capacity of how many of those people they can hang on. Some people can hang a hundred of them. I don't know how they do it. Some people can't hang but ten, but that's your growth barrier right there. You'll never grow beyond that. And you know what? You're going to be the most frustrated individual in the world because you're going to hate it after a while because you're, it's like you're dragging. What people have to, he's El Shaddai. Study what that means, a strong-breasted one. He is the one that they draw their sustenance from. He is the one that comforts them. He is the one. Oh, hallelujah. And you, you've got to lead them to that, that there is that, trans, there, there is that place that you have in their life uh, and, and, and they must see you as Moses. They must see you as an anointed leader in their life. Okay? Uh, that's, that's part of the church, the, the authority structure of the church. I'll talk about a little bit more. But, but they have to have a pastor. They have to have a shepherd. They can't be perfected without the fivefold ministry, and they have to understand that. So God is going to bond people to you, but the purpose is not just for God to bond people to you for that codependent relationship. It's for God to bond people to you so you can lead them where they need to go. You got to take them to Calvary. You got to take them to Jesus. You got to take them to trust, complete trust in Him and spiritual maturity. Amen. It's okay when people say, well, you know, I got this new couple I'm working with. They really love my wife and I. But that's okay if it's said in the proper context. But some people think that's the end all to end all that people like you. You, you do know that people liking you won't disciple them, right? right. That faith in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. The just shall live by faith. That's faith in God, yeah. right? Yeah. Not just a relationship with a pastor, but you must have that. God will, uh, will um, uh, do miracles in their life. You're going to call them. This should be happening in your life, I'm telling you. You should be, uh, all of a sudden, you're driving along. God says, call so-and-so right now. You pick up the phone and call them. And, hey, how you doing? I was just praying for you. Oh, Pastor, I can't believe you just called me. I was just praying. I, I, babe, it's Pastor. Can you believe he just, we're just going through. And you know what? And that's God working in their life. A supernatural touch. They're, they're, God's going to give you a word for people. You, it, that, that's, that's got to happen because God's trying to get you to be Moses in their life so they will follow you. Now, they've been baptized in the cloud and the sea. There's a vast wilderness out here, and they don't know where to go. 
You know where to go because God's speaking to you. You know where to go because God's giving you. They've got to trust you. But they trust you so you can lead them somewhere, not just so they can trust you. Okay, this isn't about you. It's about them being spiritually mature. Some pastors don't confront people because they're afraid the people won't like them anymore. That's like having your kid out in the street playing, and you say, well, babe, you know, it's dangerous out there, but he's going to be so mad if we go get him. Well, I don't want him to be mad at me. You go get him. That's not love for that kid. That's love for yourself. Thinking about yourself. Yeah, people are going to leave you. Get used to it. They hated Moses. They, they tried to stone Moses. I mean, they, 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 Moses went through a bunch. You're going to go through a bunch. You're going to do good for people. You're going to do so much good for people, and they're going to stone you anyway. Maybe they didn't tell you that in Bible school, but that's the way it is. Okay, you're going to get rejected. They lied on Jesus. They ascribed impure motives to Jesus. Think it not strange when these fiery temptations and tests come on you. It's going to happen. But you know what? You're going somewhere. God sent you to build a church, okay? Uh, You lose that person, and I'm not preaching insensitive to people, okay? Uh, I'm just saying know that there's 7 billion people in the world, and you're not their Savior. Jesus is their Savior, and you've got to lead them to Jesus. Jesus is everything. And so some people are going to reject Jesus. The way they reject Jesus is they reject you. Very few people shake their fist in the face of God and say, I won't do what you say. They say, well, I'm not coming back here because I'm not being fed. See, they, they, they say, well, I'm offended by you. If you would have called me, you weren't there. Because it's, it's easier to do that than it is to shake your fist and face God and say, I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to do it my own way. See? So they, and you've got to understand that. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. Some people don't want to give up their dope. They don't want to give up pornography. They don't want to stop sinning. And it's hard for them to say that. So they got to blame it on somebody. you got to understand that and realize that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And some people don't have faith. And you can't disciple somebody that doesn't have faith. Don't try. Stop digging around somebody that doesn't have faith. 
See, our humanity, the disciples said, let us dig around. Let let us, don't don't curse that tree yet. (laughs) Jesus, do. Now, we're not Jesus and we can't see the heart of a person, but we can judge their fruits. And how do you see faith? Obedience. That's the only visible product of faith is obedience to God's word. Now, people are not, you you can't expect people to obey what they don't know, but you can expect people to obey what they do know. And when people are violating the Word of God consistently in areas that you know, that they know, that's an indication that their faith is dead. And dead faith won't save anybody. Okay? I try my best. I still fail because... I, I am suspect of my judgment, okay? I, nobody has it right all the time. You won't, right? You're going to work with people that don't pan out. You're going to think some people are surely going to pan out, and they don't. And you're going to think some people won't ever make it, and they will make it, okay? So, I mean, don't, I, I'm not preaching know-it-all spirit here, Okay? <laughs> But you do have to, at some point, judge whether a person is worth your time. You have 168 hours in a week, don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the President of the United States or if uh, you're a fisherman. you got 168 hours in a week. As a pastor and a bivocational pastor, you've got, and you can run the numbers on this, you've got about 25 hours a week to spend working that church that includes your sermon prep time prayer that includes outreach that includes opening the church up preaching staying after church you got 25 hours to invest in that church and if you do more than that you're going to be robbing from your family and you can't do that and when you break that 25 hours down and it boils down you got about seven or eight hours in a week to disciple people You've got to choose who you're going to disciple. Now, I recommend in the beginning, you got one person to disciple, go ahead, spend your eight hours on them. See if it works out. Uh, you know, you got nobody else to go to, go to them. But you know what? At some point, if you're doing evangelism, you've got evangelism budgeted in there in your time slot, and you're spending five or six hours a week on evangelism, you should be getting some more people. At some point, you're going to have that six to eight hours that you have to disciple people, how many knows that one person can take up ten hours of your week? Don't let them. You've got to decide. And so the way I decide that is I look and see if they're obeying what I've already taught them. If they're not, I confront them about it. The main thing I do is about church attendance. Do you know people can't be saved unless they come to church? I said people can't be saved unless they come to church. Get Wednesday's message. Okay? The church is God's plan. He's not changing it for anybody. When uh, you got to assemble together in the name of Jesus with people of like precious faith to be saved. You can't be saved out on a beach with a cup of coffee by yourself. 
You can pray out there, but you, when you get done praying, go to church. And so if people won't come to church after a while, I, I confront them about it. Why you're not coming to church? You know, some, somebody's addicted to alcohol. Maybe they're getting drunk on Saturday night. I say, listen, listen, you may not have the strength to overcome alcohol right now, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can put yourself in the shower on Sunday morning, and you can wash up, and you can put your best clothes on, and you can come to church. And I don't care if you're still half drunk. Get yourself out of bed. Get to church. Oh, well, you know, they're just new babies. If a new baby won't nurse, you got to figure it out how to get some food in that baby. Or they're going to die. I had a child that was born, my, my baby was born with uh, underdeveloped lower jaw, undeveloped suck pads, and so... We noticed he was born in very healthy weight, eight pounds, uh, four ounces, I believe. And, uh, but he wasn't gaining any weight. And uh, I don't want to get too graphic, but I, my wife was nursing him, and she, uh, it, she, the, she would wet her clothes, but, and she couldn't figure out why she would be wet when he was done. And come to find out, he wasn't latching properly. And so she had to quit nursing him. We had to feed him with a bottle. The bottle would run down his mouth, and, and he wasn't gaining weight, and, and the anxiety level is rising. Okay? Uh, we, we tried all kind of different nipples. We tried bent bottles. We tried... For the next 18 months, and I tell you, I get emotional about it, and this happened while we was in Africa, too. We went to Africa when he was seven months. So during... While we were in Africa, I thought I was going to starve to death. I really did. I had people come up to me and tell me, Pastor, that baby's malnourished. I said, I know. He had a severe feeding problem. So he never ate a bite of solid food until he was two years old. And I'd have to hold him and feed him with a feeder, with uh, pureed food. And, and I would have to hold his head and push food in his mouth and... And, and hold him back so he would have to swallow the food. And sometimes I would feed him, and then he, at the end of the feeding, he'd throw it all up. And so finally we put him on Insure. We found uh, he wouldn't drink the liquid Insure, but there was a powdered product in South Africa. And the powdered Insure, he would drink it. And so we fed him Insure. It was a long, arduous process. Uh, found out he actually had a swallow delay we didn't know about. It. He couldn't tell us about it, but there's a muscle in your throat that pushes food down, and his delayed, so every time he took a bite of food, he felt like he was choking until it would feed it down. So he, then he developed anxiety about eating. And mealtime was awful, but we did what we had to do to get food in him. And when you got a new convert, Psalms 19 tells us the word converts the soul. The word. Barbecues, picnics, golf games, they have a purpose of bonding you. The purpose of them bonding with you is so they'll take the word from you. Amen. 
okay? You got to get the word in them. Somehow, you've got to leverage all of that. You got to leverage all of that goodwill, all of that miraculous power. You got to leverage it to get them to sit down and listen and ingest and eat the book. Because it's the word that produces the result in their life. And so it looks like this they like you, they, they want to hang out with you. You know, you say, well, I want to talk to you, Pastor. Okay, let's talk after church on Sunday. I'll see you. We'll go out to eat after church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, man, where, listen, you got to come to church. Why are you missing church so much? You got to confront that. You're going to a ball game? You need to come to church. Yeah. Because you like me. And you want to please me. So I don't leverage that for my benefit. I leverage that for your benefit. To get you to come to church. To get you to... I don't ever let anybody cancel a Bible study if I can help it. If I'm headed to a Bible study... I don't take phone calls. I don't take text messages. They can call me because I know they're call, calling to cancel the Bible study. But you know what? I know they think enough about me that if I take my time to drive to their house, they're going to feel bad about wasting my time, and I want them to feel bad about wasting my time. I want them to let me in and let me teach them the Bible study. Amen. Because the Bible study is going to save them going to save them and I will tell you I felt bad about feeding my kid the way I did because I force fed him I felt bad about it I was worried that I was going to damage him for life or something I really was but you know what if I didn't he would have died and it is risky it is risky but you if you love them don't tell me you love people if you won't leverage your relationship with them for their benefit. You don't, you don't love them. You love yourself. That you've got to recognize they've left everything. They've left everything. And it seems like to them it's just you and them in the wilderness. They've left everything that's familiar to them. You have to stay close to them and move them forward. Now, you know it's not just you and them. You know it's you, them, and the cloud, and the pillar of fire, and a rock that follows around in the wilderness. You know they've entered into a brand new life that is much better than what they left, but they don't know that yet. Okay? They don't know that yet. All they know is the leeks and the garlic are gone. All they know is they see no way they're going to make it through. That's a terrifying place for the new believer to be in. They're going to face rejection and fear. And you're going to have to be close to them. Be prepared for it. Don't panic. What The last thing they need is for you to panic. Know how to handle it. Know 
that they're going to Google UPCI or Apostolic or Oneness Pentecostal and they're going to find a bunch of junk. Know that right now. Be prepared for it. Don't panic about it. Have an answer for it. Because it's going to happen. And you're going to have to walk them through that. But if you're all panicked about it, I will tell you, some, some folks, they, they, they read some, well, I won't say that. You better know what you believe. You can't lead somebody to somewhere you don't believe in, right? You've led them to conversion. Now you must lead them with the same urgency to maturity. Sometimes we, we just focus on the birth. Okay? And we're like, whew. How many knows that when a baby's born, the work just begins? Right? And the parallels of the natural and the spiritual. Okay? The easy part is the birth. You know, I say that as a man, you know. <laughs> I recognize that. Uh, but there's a lifetime of work involved in that uh, it was funny I forget who it was the other day I think it's me and brother Soto somebody said something about they had their kids young so when the kids are grown they'll be footloose and fancy free and we both said no you won't either <laughs> you never quit raising your kids <laughs> forget about that concept okay <laughs> and, uh, this is a and, and so You've got to have the, the same focus that you have on the Bible study and everything and, and, and getting them in. I mean, many times you have just it, the amount of energy you have expended to make the contact, to get them to come to church, the hours in Bible study, the answering of questions. The Finally, you get them into church, and sometimes it takes them some people just walk in off the street and get the Holy Ghost. Isn't that wonderful? My experience has been very few of those people. I'm usually, you know, it, it, after a year of working on them, I, they, they finally come to church, you know, and then they, you get them to see baptism, and then you get them baptized, but they're locked up, and they can't worship. They're in the water, and, and they can't. Really get the Holy Ghost. And now you got to go through. <laughs> and it's a lot of energy. Right? And so finally they get the Holy Ghost. And you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> no, it's not over. It's not over. The same level of intensity that got them to conversion has to go to getting them to maturity. Right? And. And so there's going to come a day when they can feed themselves. I tell young families that got kids, I tell them, it gets easier. When you can tell a kid, go get your shoes on. This is kind of, I know what it's like to have to tie three kids' shoes, you know, and get three kids dressed. We, we went to South Africa, we had two in diapers. Well, no, we didn't. We, had, we decided we wasn't going to have two in diapers, so we prematurely potty trained my daughter at like 16 months old we're just like you're gonna be potty trained <laughs> okay <laughs> and so um but 
we did have two in diapers pre-Africa, okay? And so we, you, you're getting, and you're in, of course, you know, you're Alaska, you know, in the winter, snow suits, boots, getting them in the car, you know. It gets easier. There's a, there comes a day when you say, look, go get dressed. And then there comes a day they, look, I'm not cooking supper tonight. Just find something. There's stuff in the refrigerator. Go get it. <laughs> yeah. Now I've got a, my last one at home is 24. He's going to graduate from University of Michigan uh, in about a year. And uh, my wife still does everything for him, you know, because he was our sick child, you know. And I'm, I'm like, babe. I am not worried about him. He's 24 years old. He's got $2,000 in his checking account. He can get whatever he wants to to eat. <laughs> He's got a debit card, you know. <laughs> and, and thank God for mature saints. Thank God for mature saints. They don't have to call a pastor. Every time they need something, they, they need some word. They go get them a piece of meat and chew on it and swallow it and eat it. And the Holy Ghost can take care of a bunch of stuff before they ever have to talk to the pastor. Amen. Thank God we couldn't have church if everybody still has to get the, the pastor has to prepare a personal meal for everybody in the church. I heard somebody teach. I hadn't really studied it out, so this may not be right. But anyway, y'all can look it up. It's a good illustration. But it's all about the milk of the word and the meat of the word. Well, you feed babies milk, but meat, you eat your own meat, right? You don't, it, 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 somebody doesn't have to feed you a steak. Feed yourself. Go get the meat of the word yourself. Go study. You hear a sermon preached, you hear scriptures, and man, go home and dig on further in that yourself. See, and that they're going to get there, but they're not there yet, okay? And so they're babies, and so they have to be fed. They can't feed themselves. And so you, if you leave them there and you expect them because they've got the Holy Ghost now and they're saved now, you expect them to disciple themselves, they will not. And you have, to, you have to lead them. Same urgency, same intensity. I don't ask people to, if they want to be in discipleship class. They are going to be in discipleship class. I expect them to. I'm signing up. It's at 9 o'clock on Sunday. I'll see you there. Oh, that's early. I know. Here's what you do. You iron those kids' clothes on Saturday night, you know, and you get everything ready. And everybody takes a shower on Saturday night so you don't have to get up and, and fight each other for the bathroom. And, Dad, what I want you to do is I want you to get up earlier than everybody else. I want you to take your wife coffee, and I want you to get the kids ready and get your family here. Because this is what you need to do for your family if you love them. Right? Who asked their kids if they want to go to school? You have a responsibility to tell people what they need to do to grow up. They don't know how to grow up by themselves. And you do it with love, and that's why you keep building relationships with them. That's why you keep going out to eat with them. That's why you keep uh, 
make sure you shake their hand. Make sure somebody doesn't always stop you. Somebody's going to take up your time at church. The devil's going to send somebody to your church that's going to, as soon as you close your Bible, they're going to be right here. All the babies you need to touch, the sheep that you need to inspect, the people you need to look in the eye, people you need to shake their hand, so you'll know what you need to do. They're going to be gone and in the car. And you up here talking to this person about the same thing y'all talked about last week. It's a different version of it. I had a lady, We, our church... The aisle was only maybe, it wasn't even four feet wide. It was less than four feet wide. And so the pulpit was right there and it had a row of chairs here and row of pews here and row of pews. She, she was a big old gal. And so she would stand in the middle of that aisle and block it so I couldn't get past her. And finally I had to say, Angela, could you step aside? I got to go back here. And I had to push her aside and go to the back of the church and stand and turn this way so I could see people coming out. And because you got babies out there, they need your attention. You can't just let babies take care of themselves. They don't know how. And you have to make sure they're where they need to be. And they're doing what they need to do. You have to, that's, that's why you're there. Okay, we, we, sometimes you can get stuck, especially when you're planting a church. You can get stuck thinking people are doing you a favor by coming to church. Oh, and the worst thing in your mind is that people don't come back to church. Because then your numbers will be down. Because you've already told everybody you was, run, you was over 30. And if you lose this family, you'd go under 30. Yeah, I don't like, I don't like going under targets either. But there's got to be something more important to you than that. And that's their health and their well-being. And they have to be confronted. You can't let babies play with knives. You can't do it. If they're doing something they shouldn't do, you've got to confront them about it. They, you've got to discipline them about it. You see, we think the opposite. We think we need to discipline these old saints that's been around for years. And we need to be gentle with the babies. Babies need more spankings than teenagers. Right? I, my 24-year-old, I mean, I've done pretty much all I'm going to do for him, right? And there's some people been in your church. <laughs> Nobody, everybody's quiet. There's some people that ain't going to change no matter what. Why spend your time trying to change them, you know? Some, well, babies need to be confronted. And that's when <laughs> Brother T.L. Craft's coming out of me here. Uh, for their benefit, for their benefit. People who don't discipline their children are condemning their children to a life of being rejected. 
They're not even going to be good citizens. Nobody's going to want to be around them. You've got to discipline. You must embrace the process of faith, okay? Uh, One of the biggest mistakes you can make with new believers is uh, to misjudge the maturity of their faith. It produces golden calf moments. The children of Israel get to Mount Sinai 50 days later and Moses leaves them for 40 days. And when he comes back down, they're doing all kind of wretched stuff. Okay, in the wash. See, you've got you've to understand where people are and, and how mature their faith are. You've got to, you know, you've you got to know the difference. You've got to know what a one-year-old can do and what a three-year-old can do. You know, people sometimes that don't have, maybe they just have one child. They don't sometimes know what's normal. That's a first child. The child's four years old. They don't really, they've never been through that process. And if they don't, if they're kind of raising the kid in isolation, they don't know if the kid's supposed to be able to count at this point. They don't know if the kid's supposed to be feeding himself at this point. They don't know. Okay, and so consequently, there can be a problem there. And, and, and somebody that knows can walk in and say, oh, he's two, right? No, no, he's four. What? I mean, they don't say it out loud, but in their mind, they're like, he's four? And he's doing this? You know, he, he's still got diapers on? But if you've never been through that. And so you have to learn what's where people should be, at what stage. And that takes some time. But a good, uh, a, a good indicator, this is why some people who plant churches that are like me, I'm a fifth generation apostolic, okay? I don't know, I, did, I, don't, I don't remember, I got the Holy Ghost when I was seven, I'd never been in a life of sin, okay? So I don't know the process. I had to learn what that looks like. I had to learn what it looks like for a person who's never been to church before, addicted to drugs, what that growing up process looked like. See, I had to, I had to figure that out. And you may have to figure that out, but if you're a first-generation Christian and you went through the process, then you've got a good guide. Those are the most, the most effective natural soul winners are people who are first-generation Christians. Okay, because they have that they have so much to draw from from their own experience. Okay, they know exactly the process. They remember that they can identify. They can relate to it. So if if you don't know that, you will have to learn it. You're going to have to read books. Okay, you're going to have to talk to fellow uh, pastors. You're going to have to get some feedback. You're going to have to have some experience. There's no other way to get that experience. Okay, and. And so you're going to have to learn to judge whether it's an inexact science, right? How many knows that every kid grows up differently? Every kid matures at different rates, okay? And, and this is a, a process that you have to prayerfully go through. And at, the more you do it, the more experience you'll, you'll get at it. Faith is a process. We're all in it. Okay? You got to learn to discern the difference between ignorance 
confusion, contemplation, testing, disobedience, rebellion, and rejection. These are all different responses to the Word of God that indicate different levels of maturity and, and places. Okay, a person uh, that's ignorant, they just need more teaching. Okay, uh, some people, I, I baptized a guy, uh, a couple that's living together. I was kind of debating it in my mind. This was my first church, so I was learning all of this. And so they were living together. I'd been teaching on Bible study for weeks and uh, months. And I, I look over there, and both of them get the Holy Ghost at the same time in a church service. It was a beautiful thing. And I thought, the thought run through my mind, well, they're still living together. When they decide to split up or get married, then I'll baptize them. And the Lord said, What? He said, I just gave him the Holy Ghost, and you're not going to baptize him? Who are you? <laughs> so I said, okay, I think I'll baptize him. Uh, I, did, I did talk to him about the need to, to, for sexual purity, and, and they agreed to that. And so, But, you know, I, they, they didn't. So anyway, I baptized him. And so I baptized Daryl first. And it was a cold Michigan night, and the water wasn't that warm. And so I said, I wanted him to see Christine be baptized, but I didn't want him to have to stand there in the cold, wet clothes. So I said, go dry off and come back, and we'll baptize Christine. So we're standing there talking, and I'm exhorting people. I'm talking about how great baptism is. And then all of a sudden I hear this, <gasps> and I look over there, and there's Daryl. He ain't got nothing on but a towel. He's just standing there. And it doesn't even close all the way on his leg. And he'd come to see Christine get baptized, you know. <laughs> so we just throwed a bunch of towels on him, you know. Now, he didn't know anything about modesty, right? I mean, he, he just... So, that's ignorance, right? I mean, he has to be taught. So he doesn't get penalized for that, right? Uh, it, it, he didn't get a whipping for that, you know, right? My fault. I should have told him to put all his clothes on, right? Now, confusion is another thing, okay? Confusion is when a person is genuinely wrestling with a scripture. I believe, I've judged that this guy hadn't been baptized, I baptized his kids, and I, I, I'm judging that he's in confusion. Now, I don't see how, but I'm assuming he is because I haven't seen rebellion. This guy has not missed a church service in a year and a half, I, and he's never met, he's never been absent without leave. Okay, some midweeks he's had to miss. He's been on vacation, but he's always called pastor. We won't be there. We'll be here. Okay, ties regularly. So I must, I'm judging that he's confused. Okay. And the only way to solve confusion is more teaching. Okay. More teaching, one-on-one conversation. Okay. And that's where I'm at with him. He's been through so many and heard it preached so much Baptism in Jesus' name. I'm sure it's not ignorance. He knows his family's been baptized. 
but he's hesitant, so I'm, I'm judging he's in confusion. So that's going to require a personal conversation with him. Not sure he's ready to have it yet, I, but I'm, I'm, like I said, this is an inexact. I'm looking for a God moment in his life. There's going to be a moment when God maneuvers things, where he and I are in a proper setting, the question's going to come up, and I'm going to have the opportunity to explain it to him. Show him the way of the Lord more perfectly. Contemplation. He may be at this place. He may have sorted out his confusion. I'll have to have a conversation to find out. He may be at contemplation. He may truly be mulling it over in his mind. I taught a guy Bible study for four years. Catholic. He came to church faithfully during those four years. Tithe. Four years. Wouldn't get baptized. But I knew why. He wasn't ignorant. He wasn't confused. He was contemplating. He knew, and he was counting the cost. He knew the day he got baptized, he was disavowing his Catholic grandfather, his Catholic roots, everything. He knew that meant he was not confused. He was an engineer and had an uh, MBA, and he knew exactly what he was doing, and he was contemplating the cost. And... The day he said he wanted to be baptized was one of the greatest days of my life. Praise God. And he is a foundational fan. And I thank God he counted the cost. And I knew better than to push him. You can't push a person past contemplation. You've got to wait on them. You've got to wait on them. You can't make a decision for them. You don't want to use, here's where you don't want to use the relationship you have with them, is to push them over and have them make a quick decision. See, I could do this to this guy probably because he's a religious guy. He came from a mega church. He knows, and, and, and I could probably use my position of pastor and say, listen, I'd like to use you to be the men's minister, but listen, I need you to get baptized in Jesus' name before you can be the men's minister. And you know what? He'd probably do it. But I don't want him to do it for that reason. I want him to do it because he knows that he's got to take on the name of Jesus in baptism. I want him to know he is acknowledging by his baptism that all fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. And I am complete in him. Now you've got to know this. You've got to figure this out. Some of it you'll know instinctively. Mothers... You know, they send these babies home from the hospital with mothers that's never had a kid before. No instruction manual, no video, nothing. I can't believe it. They did. They sent my grandkid home with my son with no instruction. <laughs> Shocking. But, you know, they figure it out, right? Because there's an there's a instinctive nature and as you walk in the spirit I, I may be making this sound too complicated too complicated and you do have to focus on it but the, the Lord's going to show you how to do it okay you're going to listen to the Holy Ghost don't over ever override that from peer pressure don't, don't ever do that listen to the Holy Ghost 
as I just talked yesterday, that word has to be planted in order. That seed has to be planted in order. There's a process to it. And you've got to learn it. You're going to become more skilled. Jesus told his disciples, I will t- make you to become fishers of men. Nobody knows all about this naturally, but the Holy Ghost will teach you to become an expert. If you listen to it. The, the, one of the worst mistakes you can make is think people just fall out of the sky discipled. I think some people feel that way. I think some pastors think if they just open up the door, they have church, that people are just going to magically come in. You build it, they'll come. The Great Commission is go ye, not they'll come. Okay? It's not going to happen. Yes, God does do miraculous things, and sometimes revival comes and God does his thing, but that's not, he didn't say, I'll do my thing, don't worry about it. He said, go ye. He called us laborers, okay? He said, you're going to be fishers. You, so you've got you to learn those skills. These people are not just going to magic. Your kids don't just magically grow up and become good citizens. So you, you learn what testing is. Some people test God. Smart people test God. God's not afraid of people's doubts. We call him Doubting Thomas. The Bible doesn't call him Doubting Thomas. And Jesus said, just come, come see. Who said it this week? Untested faith is, can't be trusted. You want people to test. Don't get mad at them. Don't get insecure and think they're a troublemaker. There's going to be that. Uh, they're going to test God and God's going to test them. He said to Abraham, now I know. Now I know. And God is going to test them and they're going to test God and that's okay. You've got to chill out through that process. Your kids are going to test you. They're going to test the boundaries. That doesn't make them bad kids. It's a, it's a natural process that God puts in kids so they'll be independent and won't live in your basement the rest of their life. It's a good thing. And you can't overreact to all of that. Sometimes they're testing your love. I don't know. An eight-year-old kid doesn't think this out, but when he says, I hate you. He doesn't hate you. And he's going to get another spanking because he said it. <laughs> right? But he is testing his parents' love. You know, where am I in this process? You know, what can I be bad enough for them to reject me? You know, and then he figures out, no, I can't be bad enough for them to reject me. You know, and it's complicated. This is a relationship that's happening between them and God. And you're kind of on the outside at this point. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to facilitate this thing. But this, they don't belong to you. You didn't die for them. He did. They're his bride. 
There's something going on between them and God that you, ha- you are observing and you're a party to helping them, but you're not in control of all of it. And then there is disobedience. Disobedience. And disobedience must be confronted. Now, I had a rule. My kids, my kids didn't get a spanking for accidents. They get, didn't get a spanking for carelessness. They didn't get a spanking for immaturity. But they always got a spanking for disobedience. The minute I determined that they had willfully disobeyed, they were going to get punished. And I couldn't. I had to be very consistent in that. I didn't let them slide because I was too tired or I didn't want to fool with it. I recognized disobedience will destroy their life. And I immediately confronted, well, you've got to do the same thing with new converts. Disobedience. Ignorance won't destroy their life. It can lead to problems if they stay ignorant. Uh, confusion won't necessarily destroy them. It can if it lingers. Disobedience will destroy them. And you can't let it slide. Okay? Uh, you must confront disobedience. And you need to know uh, there, there's going to be a process. I mean, I think every disciple is going to at one point disobey. Just like every kid is going to disobey. It, it's not a fatal flaw that they're disobeying, it, but it, it, it triggers a proper response. And some of the most teachable moments you can have with your kids are when they've disobeyed and you discipline them, correct? And, and it can become a beautiful thing. What Satan meant for evil, God meant it for good, right? I just looked at the clock. I, am, I'm, I will hasten on. Um, the new disciple, of course, I'm going to go back there. The rebellion and rejection is when you back off. You can't disciple somebody through rebellion. You, you, when they, you can't disciple somebody through apostasy. You've got to quit going after some people. Stop going after them. There's more people out there to be saved. You're back to your 168 hours. Don't go after people in rebellion. Let rebellion run its course in their life. You can't help them. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, a rejection of the gospel, people, apostates. You cannot help them. Do you believe that? I see some people say, oh, we can help them. Oh, we can. They've just been hurt. They've just been. No, they're in rebellion. Leave them alone. The father did not go to the pig pen. If they're going to get out of there, they'll get up and they'll come home. And then you'll be there with love. But you can't go chasing them through the pig pen. You don't have time for it. And Jesus doesn't. There's some people you turn over to Satan for the destruction of their body so that their soul can be saved. This new disciple must reject the comfort and tradition of Egypt. Rarely will you lose a disciple over doctrine alone. 
the number one culprit is the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. The pain of slavery is quickly forgotten in the face of the loneliness and unfamiliarity on the long road to the promised land. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. And over time, people want to touch the unclean thing. Over time, they get tired of being in the wilderness, isolated from the cosmopolitan center of Egypt. And they start having daydreams about what it was like to be back with the leeks and the garlic. And you know what? If a person does not learn to loathe slavery, how could the children of Israel ever have been tempted by the leeks and the garlic? Because they, they did not have a proper understanding of slavery and they didn't have a proper loathing of it. Ye that love righteousness hate evil. There has to be a rejection of the world. When you see a convert still hanging with their old friends, still trying to keep some of that, still... You go, it's, gonna, it's not a whole lot you can do about it except pray that they fall in love with Jesus. You go through these processes. You teach the word. But the bottom line is some people never fall in love with Jesus. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts when people love the world more than they love Jesus. When people had rather have the pig pen than the comfort of the Father's house. When people are, are, are looking at their old slave master and saying, oh, it was so good back then. It's deception. It's, they're blinded by the God of this world. And expect the crisis. We've talked about that a little bit. There's going to be a crisis considered a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. I'm in James 1, 2, and 4 in the message. Considered a sheer gift, friend, when tests and challenges come to you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Pastor, that crisis comes, it shows you where they are. You ever been shocked? A trial comes in and you're like, oh, what are they thinking? God's showing you where they are in maturity so that you can be aware. Okay? And God's working on them. He's trying them. He's letting this come in their life. Sometimes they're shocked. And it drives them to their knees, their reaction. Because God's perfecting their faith. There's going to come crisis. Crisis is God's way of letting his leader know the true status of the new believer. Be very aware and observant. If you pay careful attention, you will know what areas need strengthening so that they can survive the next test. They must understand the progressive nature of salvation and sanctification, okay? you got to understand that the only safety from the world is distance. they got to keep 
going toward Jesus. They got to keep going toward Jesus. Separation is not so we can control people with legalistic ideas. It's to put distance between them and the world as much as possible so that it loses its magnetic force. You got to make it so difficult to get back to Egypt. They have to climb over. My God, I don't know what it'd take for me to backslide. I'd have to climb over so much stuff. I've got so much between me and the world that even if I take a couple steps back, I'm still a long ways from Egypt. You can't live life on the edge. <sighs> Thank you, Jesus. Therefore, since we are now justified, Quitted, made righteous. I'm in the Amplified, Romans 5, 9 through 10. Brought into a right relationship with God by Christ's blood. How much more certain is it that we shall be saved by Him from the indignation and wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, it is much more certain now that we are reconciled that we shall be saved, daily delivered from sin's dominion through His resurrection life. Daily delivered from sin's dominion. They don't get that. You don't teach that to them. You're going to lose them. They must understand and embrace the authority structure of the church. Their firm belief in the word of God at this point will allow you to teach them the very uncomfortable, to their unregenerate mind, the uncomfortable truth that we obey them that have the rule over us for they watch for our souls. There has to be an embracing of the authority structure of the church. You can't be Bob to them all their life. Now there's, 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 when they first come in, you know, I, I'm, I'm Scott to some folks. Scott, and I, I, I get it, I hear it. Okay. But one day it's going to be pastor. They're going to mature to the place. They understand. I'm not going to say, now listen. Now I might, I might, I, I've done it before. But I do it to somebody that's being rebellious. Okay, somebody that's in resistance, I'll say, you call me pastor. Okay, because I'm confronting a spirit of insubmission. But there's going to come a time in that person's life, they wouldn't dream of calling me Scott. Because they understand who I am and what I represent. And they wouldn't think. They don't, you don't even have to tell them to change. Pastor, I have a, I have a, uh, a fa- family that had uh, called me, uh, didn't know what to call me, from a Catholic background, didn't want to call me father, and I didn't want them to call me father, and they didn't know they were, so uh, I said, you know, Pastor Scott, so the girl was about 23, she said, how about P. Scott? I said, sure, P. Scott. So I was P. Scott. What? She wasn't doing it in rebellion. She was doing it in ignorance. I don't confront ignorance. I teach ignorance out of people, right? And so I'm P. Scott. And, and, that, and she was 24. is okay, but it caught on with another lady in the church. She started And then I've watched. And now it's pastor. I didn't have to tell her P. Scott. I, don't, I didn't take offense by it, but, you know, you don't want to be P. Scott forever. There's that, that you watch for that, 
They're going to treat you. You've got to teach pastoral authority, even as uncomfortable as it is. In your little church, I've taught it to 10 people. Then finally, they must begin to invest time and money in the kingdom of God. Where your treasure is. No exceptions. No exceptions. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if they don't start paying tithes, they don't start, if they're an electrician, you look for it. It's a, a lot of times it's a progressive thing. First of all, it's 20 bucks a week in the plate, and then it's 40 bucks a week, and then uh, there's that great day. And as a home missions pastor, count the offering. You count the offering. Look at every tithe envelope. You'll grow to a place where you, you'll, you'll get a spreadsheet. But right now, you do it. You need to know every week what's going on. And, and then it's $278.75. And you look for that progression. And if it's not progressing, you're going to have to find out why. And you have to teach about it. Because people need to put money in the church. Not that the church needs their money. People need to put their money in the church. Amen. And, and they need to put... If you've got an electrician that keeps walking by a broken plug at the church, something's wrong. You've got a guy who has a landscape business and he doesn't offer to mow the grass. You got a guy that's got a cleaning service and he doesn't offer it at least to give you a discount on cleaning supplies. People give what they are good at, their talent, their ability. Amen. And they need to. And I always start with that. I'm looking for people that's got skills. And if I've got an electrician and I don't have an electrical problem, I make one up. I'll break something. I want some I want them doing something. I'm finding stuff for them to do. There's nothing more healthy than seeing a new convert couple. She's in her blue jeans and he's in his shorts and they're cleaning the church. It's a start. Right? They're investing. Because the more they put their treasure in, their heart follows treasure. Heart follows treasure. Oh, praise God. Amen, amen. Let's raise our hands and talk to the Lord. God, teach us, teach us, teach us to make disciples, God. Teach us. Teach us, teach us, teach us, teach us. Oh, God, in the name of Jesus, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. 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 <clears throat> Praise God. Hallelujah. I worked for two brothers that owned orchards. You may be seated just for a minute. And 
<clears throat> they had a retail store, and I was in charge of the retail store, but uh, being around apples and peaches, began to learn a few things about it. I think uh, Brother Soto mentioned something about the, the way the harvest can come. I remember one day I was in the store, and the owner came in, and there were two rows of luring peaches just behind the barn. And somehow, in, in all that was going on, uh, they hadn't been harvested uh, the second time. And so he said, hey, Stu, he said, would you get a peach basket? Get a couple. He said, there's, there's two rows there, and there's not many peaches on there, but Loring peaches, they're about the size of a softball, and you talk about good. Now, a couple weeks before, you could almost go through there and let them run down your arms into the basket, the peaches. They were kind of firm and hard. Not this time. You had to reach out individually and very carefully put that peach. And after you got maybe four or five in the basket, you had to put it aside, get another basket, because if you kept putting peaches on there, ones on the bottom, they're, they're going to get crushed. What we're hearing, friends, is so precious. Amen. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Sistrunk. But let, let me just... We assisted Brother and Sister Trout in Dover, Delaware for a number of years. And it was like 1973, we were putting a new addition on the back of the church in Dover, and they pastored a church in Northeast Maryland 50 miles away. And Thursday night was service in Northeast, and a young couple, precious young couple, just beautiful folks that started coming, didn't know anything about Pentecost, and... Uh, <clears throat> So Brother Trout was over there Thursday. Friday, we're out in the back working on the building, and uh, the door opened into the, into the old uh, <clears throat> kitchen area, and Fran, her name was Fran, Fran was standing there. Brother Trout looked up and said, oh, Fran, good to see you. And she had her purse, and she had a, a, a handbag. And Brother Trout went over and talked to her a minute and said, turned, and there was three or four of us, and said, she wants to get baptized. She got up Friday morning and just felt, I, I have to get baptized today. I can't wait till Sunday. I need to get baptized today. So she drove 75 miles. Amen. And so we all went in. We're thrilled, you know. And there was, <clears throat> thankfully, there was water in the baptism already <laughs> because she went in to get ready to get baptized, and she came out in a two-piece swimsuit. <laughs> was the fastest baptism I think ever, <laughs> ever done. <laughs> we assumed, well, well, she knows she's getting baptized, you know, she'll have problems. No. She, she came to Brother Trout about two months later. Brother Child told me, he said, she came. She was so embarrassed. She said, oh, Pastor Child, please forgive me. <laughs> oh, this, this thing of people getting converted. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. And the rejoicing that goes on in heaven. Hallelujah. Praise God.